Welcome, everybody, to episode 21 of the Fire Nuggets podcast. Today is January 13th, 2022, and we're psyched to have David Mellon as our guest today. The goals here are pretty simple, bring in great guests and try to mine as much gold as possible from them uh, in as much time as it takes. Short, sweet, and deep. Uh, Joey and Lane couldn't make it today, so it's just Jeff and myself, Nick, on the mic today. So how you doing, David? I'm good. Thanks for having me, man. This is uh, I've been wanting to get on the show for quite a while. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on, man. We really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Uh, we've been looking forward to having you as a guest for a bit, too. Um, so let, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know that currently you're a captain at Reno Township and a fire medic for a suburban fire department. Yeah, so uh, I volunteer in Leavenworth County. Uh, I'm a captain on a, uh, a rural fire department. <laughs> we cover basically the entire south end of uh, the, the county between Lawrence and Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, and then I work as a career fire medic in the uh, Kansas City Metro. It's a suburban department just outside of KCK. Uh, and uh, we run a single single house, uh, a medic unit, a quint, or an engine, depending on what day of the week it is. Uh, and then uh, we have a brush truck. Uh, we do some regional uh, wildland stuff as well. Uh, and then I uh, started Valor Fire Training back in 2015 and uh, have been doing that for a while. Uh, teach with some some phenomenal dudes uh, from all over the Midwest. I got uh, uh, Logan Watts up in Nebraska, Ben Burbridge up in Omaha, um, Darren Shepard and Dylan Ritter down here in Kansas City, uh, Bill Blackwell from KCK. I uh, got uh, Chris Morrow from Lawrence. So a uh, good mix of of career and and volunteer guys uh, that bring a lot to the table. Yeah, it sounds like a strong group you got there. Yeah, it's uh, and when we put the group together, I mean, it started with Ben and I, uh, and then we just kind of expanded out from there. And it was always uh, people that came to classes and were engaged and actually liked doing the work. Uh, and so they always stood out to us. And then uh, usually uh, they'd reach out to us and be like, hey, man, you know, if you ever need help, let me know. Uh, and uh, that's kind of how it started. So we're we're constantly uh, traveling and doing stuff, but uh, the best part is we're constantly learning and, and being students of the craft while we're out there. So it's, it's been amazing. Yeah. I like how you, you word this on your website is like your, your ideology when it comes to this is you're there to learn with everybody else. And I think that sometimes maybe too often uh, that perspective is, is like, we're the teachers, you're the students, but I like how you guys worded that. Like, Hey, we're just going to learn together guys. Let's, Let's all have some fun and get a little bit better today. Yeah. And, you know, it, it kind of that whole mantra thing kind of came. I, I, I throw random stuff out there uh, every once in a while and uh, it ends up being profound. I don't mean it to be. It just happens. <laughs> uh, but we were sitting there after a class one day and, and one of the students was like, hey, man, you know, I really appreciate you guys being so cool. And, you know, even when I would bring things up that you guys hadn't heard, you guys were super willing to listen and and even incorporated it into the class. And I said, man, we're not here to train you. We're here to train with you. Like, that's the whole point of this. And uh, everybody just stopped and looked at me. And I was like, all right, I'll go write that in the book. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. I hope everybody hears that and, and hopefully has that kind of aha moment going like, you know what, that's that's how this started. And that's how we should keep doing this, too. Uh, I always like to think that like when we're when we're doing some training, I always ask if anybody has some other ideas. And if it's something that we've never tried, never heard of before, even if we have. Like, well, let's try that. We're, this is where we're supposed to make mistakes and try new things and be creative, guys. Absolutely. So when did you come on the job? Uh, so I started out, uh, <clears throat> that's always a kind of a source of contention. So depending on how you look at it, uh, I started out as an explorer uh, at 14. And uh, the, it was up in Lincoln, Nebraska. They actually put us through, uh, obviously, we couldn't get certified, but I mean, they took us through the entire fire one book, right? So I mean, I was doing ropes and knots and ladder throws and searches and all sorts of stuff. So I got exposed to uh, everything starting uh, at 14. Got all my certs and got my EMT at 18, started working as a, a EMT, uh, and then got my paramedic. And when I moved down to Kansas City uh, in 2005, uh, had, had continued doing some stuff with the state fire marshal up there and still went and did trainings. Um, as a, a student with uh, the college. And then when I moved down here to Kansas City, got on a volunteer department that no longer exists, actually, and uh, have always volunteered, uh, volunteered everywhere I've lived, and uh, always kind of sought out the more aggressive departments, the ones that were, I don't want to say the, uh, the scrappy ones, but, uh, you know, I didn't want the prim and proper departments, I wanted the ones that was kind of the misfits. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's, uh, I was working as a career medic when I started out, I wanted to be a really good medic. I grew up in a department that, uh, 
you know, the fire medics would get on scene and they do great for like the first five minutes until the ambulance showed up and then it was over. And I didn't want to be that guy. I wanted to be the medic that was like, okay, we're 30 minutes into this and I still know what to do. And so my plan was to uh, do the EMS thing for a little while. And like 10 years in, I'm like, shit, I'm still doing this medic thing. And I was, I was always doing the fire stuff on the side, but uh, then I got hired at Edwardsville as a career fireman uh, about five years ago. And it's been, it's been, I, I mean, I always knew it was going to be the best job ever, but uh, we run an ALS ambulance, but we still get to fight fire. I mean, if we're first in on a fire, I, I don't mess with the ambulance stuff. We go in and fight fire. So it's, it's been awesome. I like that. Do you guys have a, a water can on your, your ambulances? We do. So uh, I actually, when I started, the ambulance was the ambulance. And this is a holdover from, uh, just to give a little bit of a backstory. So the ambulance service was covered by a third party uh, initially when they started running EMS. And it had been that way for years. Uh, and then the city decided to start their own ambulance service. But it was that division. It was like, that's the EMS side and this is the fire side. Uh, and so that had kind of gone away when I got hired. But uh, within the first, I don't know, six months, I was like, hey, man, we don't have like a set of irons. We don't have a water can. And we had extras. So I just grabbed one and threw it on the truck. And it was like this aha moment. Um, and it, it pissed a lot of people off. <laughs> but it's still there. I mean, we, you know, we have a tick, we have irons, we have a water can, we put our gear on the on the uh, medic unit. And uh, we just hope that when we go, we, we get to do fire stuff. Right on. Uh, you also uh, are our co-host or the host of, of Valor Fired podcast. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about that show and kind of what the origins of that was? Yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously there, I got into this uh, around the same time there were a thousand podcasts popping up. I mean, there's, there's a lot out there. Um, and when I watched them, I mean, they were awesome. They were fun to watch. They were uh, amazing to listen to. I'd listen to them on the way to work or when I was working out. Um, but uh, I was actually sitting around the firehouse table one night and I was listening to a guy that was getting ready to retire and just the interactions between the crew and him and listening to war stories and, and just getting his opinion on things and, and his thoughts. I said, man, I really want to do a podcast where like, that's, that's the, the focus is like, if you were sitting at a firehouse table and just listening to the guys having conversations and just listening to the, to the way that they're giving advice to the younger members and stuff like that. And so um, that's kind of how it started. And uh, I tell everybody before they come on the show, like, Hey, this isn't scripted. I, I don't, I don't send people questions. It's just whatever happens happens. Uh, I just did the last one with Rob Ramirez from Florida and uh, he goes, Hey man, what are we going to be talking about? I said, I don't know, but we'll figure it out. And uh, we went, I mean, we talked about COVID, we talked about rescue stuff, we talked about Cuban coffee. Uh, and so that was, <clears throat> the focus was to kind of bring that firehouse coffee table or the firehouse kitchen table to, uh, to each person. Yeah, I'm sure most of our listeners are well aware of this, but it's a, it's a great podcast. And if you've never checked it out, please do so. Uh, you'll, you'll be glad you did. Thanks, man. I appreciate another that. super interesting thing you got kind of in the hopper is, is the hot seat. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, the hot seat. <laughs> yeah. So that was another one of those, uh, WTF moments. So I was sitting, <laughs> I was sitting at the firehouse. Uh, we're, we're kind of doing our thing. And, and, uh, one of the guys goes, Hey man, have you ever seen that, uh, show on YouTube that they eat like progressively hotter hot wings with the celebrities? And I was like, no, man, I, I don't think I've seen that. So he, he played it on the screen and I was like dude who would be dumb enough to do that it's like I'd be I'd be dumb enough to do that I would I would do that I'd sit there and eat like hellaciously hot hot wings um and for those of you that don't know me I don't do hot stuff I I just I don't like eat jalapenos I don't do super hot hot sauce uh it's just not my thing but for the comedic value I was like that's fantastic and so then I got to thinking about it and I was like well I could probably get some like influential firefighters to come on and just pick their brain uh, and watch them suffer. And so that's how it started. And uh, it was right at the beginning of COVID. And so we've, we've kind of been trying to navigate the whole COVID thing because it's hard to get people together and eat um, with uh, some of the restrictions. But now that things are loosening up a little bit, uh, 2022, we're going to have a huge lineup. Uh, I'll, I'll put out a couple of teasers. There's some, there's some huge lineup, uh, big, big name people that wanted to be on it and they've reached out to me. So it's going to be pretty cool. That sounds awesome. I, you know, anytime you bring sadism and, and firefighting together, uh, whatever child is born from that, that relationship, I'm a big fan of. 
Absolutely. And, and people ask me like when I was down in Oklahoma uh, doing the Corley Moore uh, conference, uh, honor the fallen, we ended up doing two shows back to back. It was Jacob Johnson and, and Rob Ramirez. And guys were like, dude, they only had to do it once. You had to do it two days in a row. And I was like, you have no idea how much Pepto. Uh, <laughs> like I was drinking That's Pepto like it was Gatorade. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great idea, man. Uh, it's awesome too. It's fun to watch that on, on YouTube. And then last, but, but most importantly, can you tell us a little bit about your family? Yeah. So uh, my wife Kitty is a teacher. She's a first grade teacher uh, here in the Kansas city Metro. Uh, she's been doing that for uh, like 15 years. Uh, she's kind of the breadwinner. So I do whatever she tells me to do, but uh, we had uh, two, two sons, Aiden and Leo. Uh, Aiden is absolutely enthralled with the fire service. He loves every bit of it. Uh, Leo has absolutely no interest. Uh, he is just totally like, I'll do anything other than being a firefighter, which I'm cool with. I didn't push anything on either one of my kids. Uh, they grew up around the firehouse. They know uh, what I do and we've had conversations about it, but I told them, I said, you know, you can do anything you want in life. Uh, I will always support you. I don't expect you to follow in my footsteps. Uh, and Aiden came to me, he's 10 now, but he came to me when he was eight and he was like, dad, I want to be a fireman when I grow up. I was like, okay, buddy. So he goes to conferences with me. He goes to trainings with me. And uh, Leo goes just because he doesn't want to be left out, but he doesn't really. I mean, he sits there and plays on his iPod. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen kids at a conference, and I love that idea. I just need to convince my kids to to get interested in that. Yeah, it. Uh, and I got to hand it, uh, you know, fire. Uh, Aiden got a, a set of fire decks. Uh, it's the Tech Gen Rescue Gear. And uh, we hooked him up with a helmet. Uh, we got him some... Uh, some kid sized fire gloves. Uh, cause I got him like the work gloves, you know, from, you know, like a farm supply place. And he's like, dad, these aren't fire gloves. I was like, I don't think they make them small enough. So I called one of the glove manufacturers and they were like, yeah, we can make a small glove. Uh, and so they did. And, uh, it's been awesome, man. He, he was at uh, bears of the oath in Georgia. Uh, he was down in Oklahoma and I mean, they'll have, they'll have him hauling bottles and helping fill stuff. And obviously doesn't do firefighting, but just to have him feel like he's part of it. Uh, there's no better feeling in the world. That's pretty awesome. That's some good dadding right there. I got to make up for it somehow. We're gone. We're gone too much, you know? All right. Now, now that we got done with that, that awesome intro now on to uh, question number one. So uh, got to give a, a little bit of a shout out here. So, so Corley Moore does the weekly scrap, uh, which I really enjoyed your episode. Um, so we're actually going to pull something from that weekly scrap here that we heard. So you mentioned in uh, the, the scrap uh, episode 84 that you have an ideology where uh, you look at an issue from the worst case and work backwards to find kinks in your operation and effectively chase those kinks. Can you elaborate uh, on, on this ideology? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So really early on in my career, uh, I had a captain, uh, Bob Cunningham from uh uh, up in Nebraska. And he, you know, he was so influential in how I look at the fire service and, and his passion and his leadership and just the way that he was a company officer. I always kind of aspired to be like him. Um, and, and he wasn't without fault, but one of the things that he always did was whenever he would look at a situation, he would always look at the absolute worst case scenario. So, I mean, it could be, you know, the door is broken <clears throat> leading out to the bay. And most guys would look at that and be like, oh, you know, it sticks and it's kind of hard to get it open, but it'll be fine. We'll, we'll write it up and it'll, no big deal. He would take that to like the extreme. He'd be like, listen, if we get a house fire and there's somebody trapped and I'm trying to get out that door and it takes two seconds off me getting to the rig, that's two seconds less that they have to live. And I was like, okay, that's a little, it's a little extreme, but uh, sure. And so after kind of talking to him about it, that carried on throughout my fire service career. So when I became an EMT, uh, I was emphatic with making sure that things were the way that they were supposed to be. If a piece of equipment had a red light, you know, it was red service light, most people would pop the battery out, pop it back in. And if it runs okay, they're like, okay, great. I'll put it back on the rig and I'll use it. Well, I looked at that as what's the worst possible case scenario. Well, we're going to show up on a code and we're not going to be able to shock the patient. Or even worse than that, we're going to show up on a code in an auditorium with 500 people and you know, it's back before smartphones, but now even more so, everybody's doing this and you're in an auditorium of 500 people and your AED or your monitor doesn't work 
And everybody for the last week's been like, yeah, every time I check it on in the morning, uh, that red light comes on, but we never fix it. So uh, I took that when I became a company officer and I kind of instilled that in all of my crews. Uh, you know, hey, listen, if you guys see something, let's get to the worst possible case scenario and let's work our way back from there. Because if we can rule out the worst possible case scenario, we never have to worry about it. But it's those little things that people minimize and kind of sweep out under the carpet uh, that, that will eventually lead up to that uh, perfect storm. It's a beautiful segment, uh, segue you just had right there. So you do have a class called the perfect storm preventing yep. organizational catastrophe where you talk about recognizing red flags and forecasting future successes and failures. Can you give us a little description of this class? Like, I don't want you to tell, like, give us your entire class here, but give us a little 30,000 foot view of this class and then tell us kind of what the inspiration for this class was. Yeah. So, uh, the inspiration for the, I'll start with the inspiration. The inspiration for the class was, uh, watching during my career, uh, and, and all in all, you know, I've had a great career. I've, I've been very fortunate to be a part of great organizations, horrible organizations, great leaders, horrible leaders. Uh, I've had a good mix. Uh, and, and I envy the people that have just been on an awesome department with awesome leadership and they've never had to deal with a bad boss. Um, but I haven't, you know, I've had a good mix of both. So watching people minimize problems and having those come back to bite me in the ass, that was what created the class. It was me having to constantly try to put out those little campfires to keep the, 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 the big one from happening. And when I started digging into it and doing a lot of research, like a lot of people don't know the station nightclub fire. Do you guys know what the station nightclub was before it was the station nightclub? Only from listening to you talk uh, uh, somewhere else. Yeah. So it was a burger joint, right? And so when they changed it from an occupancy of a, of a restaurant to a nightclub, the inspector came out and did the inspection and there was one checkbox for a change of occupancy that would have required them to put in a sprinkler system. And that one checkbox didn't get checked. And so there was no sprinkler system, which we now know would have probably saved all of the lives. Um, and you're going to get some trampling. I mean, they're, they're probably, uh, I can't say that it would have saved everybody, but it would have significantly altered the events that night. Um, you know, the Challenger uh, space shuttle explosion. There were engineers that walked into the space shuttle command and said, hey, we don't think you guys should launch it. And they said, hey, give me the over under. What do you think is going to happen? And they said, we don't think that you guys, uh, we guys don't, we don't think that you guys should launch. And they said, well, we're going to go ahead and launch anyway. And you see what happens. So there's all these things that people try to minimize and they always try to go with the, the, the odds. Well, you can't go with the odds in our career. Like that's what ends up getting people hurt or killed. Um, and so that's basically what we talk about in the class is how to recognize those things. And, and I, get, I try to give people uh, the tools that they need to be able to stand up for themselves, stand up for other people. Uh, and then in the leadership side, I give those people the understanding that they need to be cognizant and aware of what their crews are telling them uh, all the way up to commissioners and, and, and uh, government leaders. I mean, I've had some, some township boards and some city councils uh, that I've presented this for. And it, they have come back and said it completely alters. Like when the fire chief walks in and says, this is a significant issue and we need money for this, we have a different view on it than we would have before we had that class. That's a good point. Like bringing this up to the city administrators and, you know, the city hall dwellers, because I think oftentimes we leave them out of the conversations. Uh, we only go to them when we feel like we're getting the short end of the stick or when we need something, it seems like. And bringing them into our discussions and into our world uh, is definitely gonna be advantageous for, for everyone involved, namely the citizens. So this perspective of always kind of firstly going towards like worst case scenario and, and to the negative, does that have any other downstream effects like anxiety or does your wife hate having conversations with you? or your kids get super annoyed with you when they're like, dad, I just want to go skiing. And you're like, well, what happens if you break your leg? And not only do you break your leg, but it's 35 below out there and ski patrol and your phone doesn't work. Like, does that yeah. cause any downstream problems? Absolutely. Every time. <laughs> and, and, and I think a lot of it, I mean, listen, man, we're, we're anybody that's listening to this is dialed in, right? Like anybody that's going to take time to listen to this podcast actually cares about the job. 
Um, and so I would venture to say that all of us listening and, and you guys included, uh, we're constantly doing that. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I go sit in a restaurant and I'm having drinks like off duty, not at a fire conference, hanging out with my uh, smoke show of a wife and we're having drinks and, and having a good time. And I look over at the emergency exit and I'm like, man, that's not big enough to handle all these people. Uh, I've walked out of places. Like we went to a bar up North uh, in Missouri. That's down in a cave. It's like a big bar and there's only one entrance and one exit. That's it. And we walk down there and there's like candles and stuff. I'm like, Nope, we're out. And my wife was pissed. Um, but yeah, it's, I'm constantly looking at those things and I'm gauging like, what is the absolute worst case scenario? If it's something where it's just like, Hey, let's move seats or, uh, you know, with the kids, <clears throat> they're so they're like, dad, we're not going to get hurt. Well, after they got hurt a couple of times, they're like, Oh, he actually, he saw that coming. He knew what was going to happen. Um, so I, I outwardly, I try to not be like that so much in front of my kids. Cause I don't want to freak them out. Um, but uh, I, I do want to instill in them to look at those things and be cognizant of them. Yeah, that's great. Um, so something that I've really enjoyed um, while, while listening to your podcast and listening to you uh, talk with other people, you've been a very big uh, uh, proponent of having realistic fire training. Uh, and, and as most of us can kind of understand, re realistic fire training obviously speaks for itself as, as for the pros. But uh, if we're being honest, uh, what do you think the cons are of, of realistic fire training? Well, uh, there, there's a couple of things. Uh, one, <clears throat> there is always a uh, higher level of risk, right? So when we're talking about uh, you know, having live fire and making fire more realistic, uh, that doesn't always equate to higher heat that, uh, usually equates to better fire behavior. And one of the issues that I run into a lot when we're out there teaching is people are really good at fighting gas fire props, but they're not really good at fighting real fire behavior. And so, uh, you know, for, for guys like you and guys like me that have been around for a little while, um, we know that when you go into a fire and your nozzle is at a 45 degree fog on accident and you're not expecting it and you open it up, you steam yourself and that sucks. Well, we don't get that in the gas fire prop. So you have students that have bad behaviors or, or poor behaviors. And so when you do take them into real fire behavior and they open up that nozzle, uh, it's kind of that, oh shit moment. And uh, they learn real quick that they can't do that. So there is a, a level of risk that increases. However, uh, one of the things that I will say about that, and my, my biggest pushback on that is which one is more unsafe, having a firefighter that's inside of a burning house with fire rolling over their head, pushing them back down a hallway that they can't overcome with the line that they have, thinking that at some point, somebody's going to let off of that dead man switch and the fire's going to go out or having a firefighter that is knowledgeable and has been in bad situations before and goes, this is bad. I need to do these things to save my life and save the guy next to me. That that's kind of where I draw the line is, you know, yes, there's increased risk. Um, and people throw out 1403. I think it's super misunderstood. Uh, when you read 1403, it's actually a lot more accommodating than you think it is um, to be able to do some of the things and get that fire behavior uh, that we need, but realistic fire training, it takes more people. Uh, it takes more coordination. It takes more planning. Uh, it is not easy. It is so much easier to just say, Hey, go in there. Don't put the fire out. Uh, give it a couple, you know, hits pencil it and we'll move on to the next group. That's the easy way out. Uh, but I just don't think it's right. Yeah. I'll second that for at least the vast majority of, of trainings, but I think we've probably all been in a situation where we're trying to convince, you know, either someone that we work with or an organization that we're going to go instruct with where they might, their scale tips a little bit away from realistic fire training. And if we're going to try to have a conversation or discussion with them, uh, compromise or convince them, like what's the best way to go about having that discussion uh, so that we can make sure that we're having realistic fire training uh, uh, as, as a result. Yeah. So I, I think the biggest one and where I've really prided myself and, and everybody that works with Valor Fire Training, uh, we don't blow smoke. We don't BS people. 
uh, I'm not going to tell you that I'm going to come in and do the best fire class that you've ever had. I'm not going to tell you that we're going to come in and do the best search class, the best extrication class. What I will tell you is that we're going to come in and do probably the most realistic, uh, one of the most realistic scenarios or classes that you've ever had. Um, and so when we get questions like that, you know, like, well, what do you mean uh, it's going to be realistic? Is it going to be unsafe? And I'm like, well, there are things that are going to be risky. However, this is how we accomplish that. Um, you know, yes, we're going to have live victims. The live victims are not going to be inside of the burning building. The live victims are going to be outside half naked, charging your crew, screaming that they're three-year-olds trapped on the second floor. Um, we're going to have realistic fire behavior, but we're going to put two additional check lines in place with thermal imaging cameras so that we can monitor the fire behavior ourselves uh, and, and double check it. So if you minimize the risk and you have the plan of how you're going to minimize that, that usually puts everybody at ease. Uh, and, and one of my favorite stories of that is we did a, a search under live fire class down in Tulsa. And when I gave them the, the class description, it, it stated everything in there. I mean, I don't know if they didn't really read through it or they just kind of thumbed through it. Um, but the division chief of training came up to me and she was like, Hey, we're not going to let you do your class. And I go, what's going on? She goes, you can't have live search in live fire. You can't have live victims. I said, no, 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 no. There are no live victims in the fire. There are, we're doing a search under live fire. Like they're going to be crawling down a hallway and there's going to be fire rolling over their head. And she goes, that is super unsafe. We can't do that. And I said, well, we got 40 students. I don't want to cancel on them. Can we like come to a compromise? These are the things that I have in place. And I started rattling off like extra check lines, thermal imaging cameras. Um, we're going to have a four, uh, four to one instructor student ratio, you know? And so uh, when we talked about how we were going to do it, she goes, all right, I'll only do it if you guys let me be in there with you. And I was like, come on, grab your stuff. Let's go. And so she had two, herself and two other instructor cadre members for the training division. And after the first scenario, they're sitting there with their mask on. They're like, this is freaking awesome. This is so cool. I was like, I told you, and it's not unsafe. We're not doing anything crazy. Um, but that was, you know, it took a little bit of a push. And, and if they would have come back and said, hey, we're not doing this period, end of story, I wouldn't have sat there and argued with them. Um, but I think that they would have lost out. And now um, they, they're doing search under live fire as well uh, in their own training division. Love it, man. Love it. I, I actually think that's one of the best drills to do under realistic conditions along with stress uh, is, is search because that's uh, it's definitely something that's been underplayed using you know dummies and, and uh, no conditions for a long time. <laughs> Right. You know, so it, it built bad behaviors and, and training scars. So, all right. So uh, next one. So we've also uh, heard you pre preach about uh, stress inoculation. Can you first define uh, stress inoculation and then explain why you think it's a powerful tool? So, uh, well, if you guys haven't figured it out by now, I'm just a big dumb fireman. So I, I don't know the actual like, you know, Webster's dictionary. Yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know the Webster's dictionary, uh, uh, definition of stress inoculation, but, uh, the way that I look at it is, is a systematic, uh, incorporation of stress into, uh, your mental and physical state, uh, so that your body and your mind can become, uh, accustomed to performing in that environment. So when we start out doing ropes and knots, I mean, you're just tying ropes and knots, sitting on your couch watching TV. Um, when you're starting to get frustrated, and like I didn't have kids when I was going through fire one class, but I know a lot of guys that do, uh, you know, they're trying to do knots and their kids are beating the crap out of each other upstairs. And they're like, hey, I'm trying to do school stuff, Leo, just calm down, chill out. They're stressed. And so they start messing up more. And so uh, over time, what ends up happening is they get really good at tying knots in a stressful environment because their kids are freaking out or the neighbors being too loud or whatever. Um, and so this is something that happens naturally. We as instructors just kind of give it a little bit of a push. We make it to where you're physically altering your body's state. Um, and uh, we want to get them into those zones. If you guys are familiar, the, the, the uh, green, yellow, red, uh, white, black, uh, gray, and then uh, white and then black. So we, we want to get them into those environments so that they can understand 
how they're going to react. We don't ever want anybody to go fetal. I mean, I don't want somebody to just go vapor lock and, and shut down. That's not what I want. Um, but I want them to understand that at a certain point, they're going to get the loss of motor function. They're going to get the tunnel vision. They're going to get the auditory occlusion. Um, and so that's what we try to stress on people, uh, no pun intended, is that that is what firefighting is. Um, you're not just going to go pull lines and go fight fire. And then in between, you're going to run out and grab a subway sandwich and come back 20 minutes later and do it again. Um, it's going to be the worst 15, 20 minutes of your life. And then all of a sudden it's over and you're, you have to come down from that. That's a really good definition. Uh, I like how you define that is kind of this, you know, almost micro progressions, um, what are some common mistakes instructors make when trying to incorporate stress inoculation and then kind of the, the dovetail off that, what are some tips to avoid making these mistakes? Yeah. So what I see a lot of people do, uh, is they they try to go hundred percent right off the bat. I mean, you, you can't walk into a classroom and have students doing something and just start screaming at them, banging, uh, you know, a two by four on their helmet to try to knock them kind of silly. I mean, there are some absolutes that you can't do, right? Um, and so I think when it comes down to it, uh, and I always look at it like the Israeli army. So uh, a majority of the drill instructors in the Israeli army are female because what they found is that they were stern, uh, and but they were also nurturing, right? And so when I look at it, I try to be in a position to where, listen, this is going to suck and we're going to get your heart rate through the roof and you're going to be physically and mentally stressed the way that you haven't been before uh, or may have not been before, but we're going to nurture you. So you have to start out slow and you have to give them the understanding of why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and then once they get up to that point where they're, they're, they're in that zone that you want them in, if they're failing, you have to give them the answer. Like you can't just let them sit there and struggle and be like, come on, stupid. Uh, if they're struggling, that's a time where you grab them by the regulator and pull their mask in and say, hey, listen, I know what's going through your head is probably nothing right now, but I'm going to give you a couple pointers. If you turn left and go 10 feet, you're going to be in a much better position. They'll go turn to the left, they'll go 10 feet. And then all of a sudden, it's like this aha moment. Well, the next time that they're super stressed, they're going to remember that. If you don't do that, and where I see a lot of instructors fail is they're just, you know, come on, insert expletive. Um, and that's not doing anything for them. They're not putting any cards in their Rolodex. Um, you know, we want to, uh, build up that recognition prime decision-making bank. And so, uh, by doing that, you have to build confidence and you have to take it step-by-step. Step. So to answer the second part of your question, uh, they instructors that are going to do this, they really need to do their research. Uh, and I looked at a lot of psychological studies and, and psychological data, um, looking at recognition, prime decision-making, stress inoculation. Uh, and the most amazing part of it was that I reached out to people like Rick George, who does an amazing stress inoculation class. Um, and I said, you know, here, here's what I've done in the past and it's been detrimental and I don't feel like it's worked well. Here's what I've done and it worked really well. What can you give me as pointers? And he was super cool about being like, hey man, do this, do this. You're absolutely right. Don't ever do that. You know that it didn't work, so don't do it again. Uh, and he kind of helped shape that stress inoculation uh, view that I had. Yeah, that was great, man. Um, since we just hit on those two things back to back, I kind of want to go off script of, of, of what we sent you here and kind of ask you this. Do you have like a, an approach or a system that you, that you follow when it comes to training? Like, like something like I, uh, I kind of like to do is like, you know, step one is the why step two is the skill, like show them the skill three is do the reps Four is add your conditions. Like we, we talked about with realistic conditions and then five is you, you introduce stress. Um, you have a system or an approach like that. I do. It's actually the same exact system, uh, with one exception. So when we, when we've worked our way all the way through and you have these students and, and like, I'll just give one example. So I'm, and it's, I know it's ended up on social media. I don't actively promote it, but I'm, I guarantee you there are pictures of me in my underwear running around on a fire training ground uh, on social media somewhere. So I'm really big on like stripping down to my underwear. It's not a weird, I don't do it to be weird. I don't do it to be creepy. Uh, I do it because that's the one thing that just knocks people's OODA loop every single time. Like they do not expect to see a half naked, hairy dude 
running out of a, a, a door with theatrical smoke behind it, screaming and yelling in Spanish that their family's trapped in the house. So when I do that, it, it gets them in that position of like, I don't know what to do. And so we build that RPDM, uh, we help them through the process. But what we end up doing is once they've gotten through that and they feel comfortable with what they're doing, we make them turn around and teach somebody else. So we're standing there with them, but we make them be like the crew leader or the, the company officer or whatever. And we have them watch so that they can see from the opposite end of the spectrum, right? Because it's a lot different if you and I are on a fire truck together and you're really stressed out and I'm on the line with you, I'm going to be like, hey, dude, chill. Like you got to calm down. You got to breathe. Right. But if I'm the company officer, 10 feet behind you, I might not know that that's happening. So we want them to see how everybody else is reacting to it. Um, because as a company officer, like if I'm listening to people breathe, I can hear when they're freaking out. Like, I think we can all agree that you can listen to somebody breathing on air and be like, yeah, that dude's respiratory rates like 50. So, um, we, we kind of incorporate that back in and make them kind of have that 10,000 foot view, um, so that they see it from both sides. But otherwise, it's exactly what you were talking about. I mean, you start out with crawl, walk, run, um, and all throughout the way, we're, we're just giving them little tidbits to build them up. So I have another little quick little tangent that I think is in this same orbit. Uh, the first time I've ever heard anyone mention that there is an additive to like smoke machine smoke that has the scent of, of, of like campfire. I've heard of people using like, and for the same reasons, people having burn barrels outside the, the facilities um, if they can't actually be burning stuff. Um, but where does scent fit into memory and decision-making and, and kind of that stress inoculation? Can you, can you guys describe that for me? Yeah. So uh, the, the amygdala is an amazing thing, right? So uh, plain and simple. Uh, if you think back to your grandmother's house, and, you know, your, whatever the smell was, I don't care if it's mothballs or, you know, incense or whatever. Cigarettes. But, cigarettes. <laughs> but whenever you smell like that smell or whenever you smell the perfume that she used to wear, you instantly think back to her cooking or a holiday that you spent with her or whatever, right? Um, and it's the same thing. Like my wife wore a certain perfume forever. She stopped wearing it like a couple years later, I was walking through uh, a grocery store and I smelled the exact same perfume and I instantly thought of my wife. And so those things tie back in, in our, in our world, um, because you can take that scent and you can use that to replicate the smell, trigger the amygdala for whatever you're training on. So like, I don't use, and this sounds ridiculous. It's like training a dog. I mean, plain and simple, if you, if you train a dog the wrong way, they're going to have training scars forever and they're going to not do what you want them to do. So we don't use the smoke smell in our training when we're doing extrication. We don't do the smoke smell when we're doing a, a mega code for a cardiac arrest. The only time that we use the smoke smell is when we're doing search, fire attack, or ventilation. That's it. So it, it, it narrows down that recognition prime decision-making uh, to just the Rolodex for fires. Um, we actually use the smell. And since you mentioned it, um, we actually use different scents for different training. So when we're doing extrication training and we have a vehicle that's smoking, we incorporate like a, a plastic or, or like a gasoline smell, um, for vehicle extrication. So it kind of does the same thing. So the goal of that is just to trigger that amygdala and make these memories a little bit, uh, deeper. Is that the it goal? Yeah. So it's, it's just, it, it, it helps in that recognition prime decision-making. So it just narrows it down to uh, what your focus is, right? Because I mean, look, I gotta be honest with you. And, and I mean, anybody that doesn't have this happen, I mean, maybe I'm just the weird one, but like we could be going to a working house fire uh, with reports of people trapped. And I'm like, dude, did I flush the toilet? Uh, somebody leave the stove on like there's other things that are going through our head and it's it's sporadic right like i'm dialed in and i'm thinking about what we're doing but then i have these random thoughts that just pop into my head that have nothing to do with what's going on um and so what we found is that if you do the recognition prime decision making along with that trigger link triggering the amygdala um as soon as they get on scene as soon as they smell that smell it instantly pops them back into they're just focused on what they're doing 
Um, and they start thinking about all those trainings that they've been through and all the things that they've done, but it only pertains to that topic. Yeah, that's, that was awesome, man. I, uh, and, and probably one of the most underutilized tools until probably the last two years has been smoke machines, to be honest. I mean, I've, I've played live victim before, you know, in, in smoke conditions, you know, shame on me, but you know, uh, I mean, it, it sucks, but then, you know, you get a smoke machine and you can, you know, you're absolutely fine and it's realistic conditions and it's, it's great. Um, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and, and, and really, I mean, you know, with the, the, with the scent and the smell, um, I've done the burning wood in a barrel. I've done all that stuff. Um, but what really where we found the scent and the reason why we found the scent is because we had access to a school and they were going to let us go in there and do some stuff while they were remodeling. Well, from where we were going in to where we could actually burn was like a hundred yards. And so I'm like, well, I don't want to burn all the way over there in a barrel. I was like, I wish there was a way to get the smell inside the building. And uh, I was talking to a friend of mine that's in the military and he goes, well, man, he said, when we were doing military stuff before we went overseas, they had this smell uh, in the smoke. It was like dead carcass. And I go, what? He goes, yeah, there were like, when you went to go do your training before you went over to overseas, he goes, it smelled like dead body. Like it was horrible. It was like gasoline mixed with dead body mixed with like two other smells. Um, and, and he was said, when we went overseas, those were the exact same smells that we were smelling. And I said, where'd they get that from? And so he gave me the name and I called the place and they were like, yeah, we'll send you some samples. And that's how it all started. That's awesome. Um, okay. So you, uh, you teach, um, a, a writ class, uh, or yeah, uh, part of a writ class, medical response to firefighter mayday. Yeah. Um, so you, you spend part of the class focusing on what you do after a down firefighter is removed. Um, is this a concept for medical care? Uh, that's something maybe we should be looking at doing in search classes too. Yeah, I think you have to. Um, and, and, you know, our classes, and by the way, I just want to say this, that is absolutely the worst class name in the history of firefighting, because the second that you put medical in anything fire, people are like, nah, I'm out. <laughs> so it, uh, we, we joke around all the time. I mean, it's been that name for years, so it's not like we're going to change it, but, um, it, it, it very much focuses on what to do afterwards. It is a writ class. We do firefighter survival techniques and we talk about how to get firefighters out. But uh, yeah, a majority of it is geared towards what do you do when you find the firefighter? And then what do you do once you get them out? Um, and the way that I always pitch it to people is whether it's a firefighter or a, a victim, if we go in and we find that victim and it takes us seven minutes to get them out of that house, if they're unconscious, not breathing at the end of seven minutes, what are their chances of survival? If we haven't done a single thing, we haven't done CPR, we haven't bagged them, we haven't done anything for them, it's zero. Well, if we walked into a nursing home with grandma and said, okay, guys, I'm going to start my watch, we're going to wait seven minutes, and then we're going to start compressions and start doing stuff. We might as well just pack our stuff up and go home, right? So uh, you constantly have to be looking at the medical care that we're going to provide to those people from the second that you find them. So if they're burned, we need to communicate that out to the outside so that they're prepared for burn injuries. Uh, if they're not breathing, we need to understand that it's probably uh, a toxicity issue. Uh, if we have cyano kits, we need to start getting that ready. Um, so we can speed that process up. I find all too often, whether it's a firefighter or a victim, a civilian, uh, they don't start getting any kind of treatment until they get out the door and you have that like minute to minute and a half of, oh shit, what do we do now? And then as soon as that passes, that's when all the care starts. Um, so I don't know about you guys, we incorporate medical care into every single one of our search classes, uh, whether it's at the, at the fire department or for Valor Fire Training. Uh, we're constantly having them do medical care. What does that look like, if you don't mind me asking? Is that doing CPR? Is that a quick assessment? Is there anything... Uh, besides those two things that you guys typically do? Uh, so it, it actually starts with assessment. So like when I find a victim, uh, it's no different than if I find a firefighter or a civilian, I need to, I need to address, are they breathing? Are they conscious? Do they, listen, I'm not going to take my glove off and feel for a pulse. Right. Um, but if they're agonal, I need to probably hurry up because I need to get them to air that they can actually breathe. Um, or if they're, if they're gasping for air, not agonal, um, but uh, if they are agonal and I'm waiting on a ladder upstairs, why am I not starting compressions, right? 
Um, and that's always been my question with the firefighter down firefighter CPR, you know, and the guys that did that class that put that together, um, there it's an amazing group and it's an amazing video, but when you drag that firefighter out and then all of a sudden magically in the front yard with full bunker gear on, we're all doing CPR. Why can't we be doing CPR on the second floor while we're waiting on the ladder? Right? So, uh, I tell all my guys, if I, if I have to come up and throw a ladder on a second floor, or if you're coming out of a doorway, um, if you're waiting on anything and you're not doing compressions, you're not doing it right because we're not, and it, listen, it might not give them a huge jump in survival. Um, but it's at least giving them be something better than nothing. So we work on that. We work on the assessment. Uh, we work on the actual care. And then what we work on the most is the communication between the crew and the people outside. So, uh, for example, when we did our last search class up in Nebraska, it was about a week later, one of the departments in attendance had a grab. And uh, they said that they communicated everything out about the victim. You know, he's un unresponsive. He has burn injuries. Uh, he is not breathing. They said that when they pulled that guy out of the doorway, the cot was already facing the door. They had the medical bags already ready to go. The fast patches were ready. The paramedic was standing there with the fast patches. As soon as they laid that guy down, somebody cut the shirt off. Paramedic threw on the fast patches. They got him in the back of the ambulance. Uh, all the innovation stuff was already set up they got pulses back on the way to the hospital. So, and then they said like, man, we, everything flowed the way it should, like on a cardiac arrest in a house with a civilian. It was like, we didn't even have the structure fire part going on. Um, and not to minimize anything about the grab, but the grab was just the grab. We still have to do all this stuff after the grab to try to bring that person back. And so they said like everything that you talked about, where it's like, if you don't do this, it's just going to, slow everything down they said it was like rapid fire everything was just happening in succession i want to pull on this thread a bit more um but i want to recognize what i thought was something that that you guys teach that i think is important and, and i don't think enough people are teaching this i think when when people teach search and rescue oftentimes it's 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 kind of this divorce process where the first step is search and the second step is getting them out of the building which both are obvious and, and necessary right but I like how you talked about if you can find an area of refuge while you are waiting for the ladder to be thrown or waiting for a window door conversion or whatever you're waiting on, like you start your treatment right there. I think oftentimes we're just sitting on our hands or at least when people teach, they're, they're missing that, that component of, hey, if you got 20 seconds, why not do something with that time? Why not start some compressions? Why not uh, give a radio report to your, your EMS agency or your, your crews outside? But, but pulling on this thread a little bit more. So I live in a cold environment. I know it gets cold where you're at. Uh, same thing with Jeff on here. In the summer, we typically advocate for our medics coming with the cot and their equipment to like the IC or the, or the, the ICP, the incident command post. What do you guys teach or what do you guys recommend in, in the middle of winter? It's, it's seven degrees outside and there's, you know, a negative five wind chill. What do you do with a medic that is on scene? Are they parked a block and a half away just waiting in their rig, hopefully listening to the radio? Or are they trying to park closer to the scene? Or how does that work? Or what do you advocate for? So, and that's always the pivotal question, right? Because in a lot of the organizations, the ambulance is not part of the fire department. Um, and, and myself included. The, the career side, we have an ambulance. On the volunteer side, we're dependent on our county EMS service. So what I try to do, and I'll start on the, on the county side where it's not our service, you got to foster that relationship, right? Like if you're going to be on a structure fire for, you know, an hour, hour and a half uh, fighting fire, you don't want to have your medic and your EMT standing with the cot when it's, you know, negative 15 wind chill. So you have to be a little bit accommodating, but we want that ambulance to be as close as possible. Um, so a lot of those things, when you think about it, like what's our most important thing on a cardiac arrest, your airway bag, your monitor, right? The cot can get cold. I don't care if that gets cold. So maybe it's a matter of bringing them up to the, the staff car. That's the command post. If you run a command out of your vehicle, have the medic and the EMT come up to your staff car and sit in the back seat with the monitor and the airway bag. So it stays warm, but they're right there. If they're parked four blocks away, get them as close as they can put them in a fire truck. I mean, fire truck should be empty because we should all be fighting fire. Tell them, hey, go sit in engine six, and uh, if we need you, we'll call you. Cots right by the door, monitor and all the airway bag and the meds and all the stuff is inside the cab. It at least gets them right there to the scene uh, rather than being four blocks away. 
Uh, and that's what I've seen a lot of times is, especially with cold weather operations, you call for them and, you know, it could be a sprained ankle. It could be somebody that's just overexerted and they're like, okay. And then you watch them slipping and sliding all the way up the street. Cause you gotta think about it now it's icy, right? So it takes forever for them to get up there. Um, and so we started doing that early on, uh, accommodating them now on the fire side, if you own those crews, you know, when I say own them, uh, dude, it sucks. You're gonna have to stand outside and you can do the same thing. Like, don't be a dick, but, uh, when it's your people, you can be like, now for the first 10 minutes of the fire, while we're doing active fire attack, you're going to stand there in the front yard. Um, and so uh, it's just a matter of getting them as close as possible uh, until you don't need them. And once you don't need them, let them go back in service, right? Yeah, that was excellent, man. Uh, thank you for, for adding your input on that. Um, so looking uh, at broad brushstrokes here, when it comes to training and the, and the job, what, uh, what are we as the American Fire Service doing right? And what do you think we're doing wrong? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of different avenues you can take with that one. So uh, let's start with the right, okay? Um, I think in the last 10 years, we have had a huge shift uh, in the open-mindedness of the fire department, of the fire service. Uh, if you would have told me 10 or 15 years ago that firefighters were gonna be able to go and watch a YouTube video, and then bring it back to their own organization and train it within their crew. And then it would spread to the battalion and then would spread to the shift and then would spread to the whole department. I would have laughed at you. I would have been like, dude, that, I don't know if you know anything about the fire service, but that's not how that works. Um, and that's what we're seeing now. I mean, people are actually stopping and thinking for a second and going, okay, maybe we're not doing it the best way. Maybe there is another way that we can do it. Um, and, and I think it was a cultural shift over a decade where there was the fear right? For the first couple of years. And then it turned into uh, maybe a better understanding. And now we're seeing the actual uh, application of it. And so, uh, you know, people that I've talked to that have done those sorts of things, uh, they said, yeah, uh, I'm getting much less pushback now uh, than I was 10 years ago. So I think that's good. Uh, and I think we're recognizing that we're not doing some things right. Uh, and I'm going to talk about a few things here in a second. But I think the biggest thing that you can do is recognize that you're not doing something right and own it. And uh, I've seen a lot of agencies prior to 10 or 15 years ago uh, that they could do no wrong. There was no fault in them. They did it their way. And that was the way that they were going to do it. Um, and now we're starting to see organizations as a whole say, ah, maybe we're not doing this right. Maybe we need to look into this. Maybe we need to do a study on this or that. Um, and so it's, it's nice to see that what we're not doing right. Uh, I, I still think we're, I'm going to get blasted for this one, but that's okay. I, I still think we're playing too much with kid clubs. I, I, it drives me nuts, man. I mean, when we first started out in the fire service, um, we were fighting realistic fire conditions. We we're doing extrication on realistic vehicles. Um, there was a certain amount of grit that you had to have to be able to do, uh, what we're doing. And uh, I watched that kind of fade away. And so now what I still think we need to work on is uh, I'm not always going to be nice to you. I'm not. I mean, Nick and I can be friends, right? But if we're on a fire scene and you're doing something stupid, I'm going to yell at you and I'm going to tell you to quit being stupid. And uh, then afterwards, I'm going to be like, hey, man, what do you want to do for dinner? Like we can get over that, right? Uh, it doesn't mean that I'm a bad guy. It doesn't mean you're a bad guy. Um, but we got to stop playing with kid gloves. I've watched so many times where people didn't perform a skill the right way. And it was, well, we can't make it more realistic because that's too unsafe. Well, they kind of suck, but it's okay because they're new. So we'll just let it ride. And, and years down the road, they'll probably get better. We got to get out of that mindset. We, we have got to be technicians of our craft, um, but we always need to be focused on doing it better. And so, uh, like I said, the whole going in, and I, I just was at a fire class the other day <clears throat> as a student. And I watched the instructor yell at the students not to put the fire out. You know, they went in there and started opening up the line and the instructor was like, no, 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 stop. Don't put the fire out. It's still going on. Right. And, and it's going to go on forever. I mean, you're never going to be able to convert everybody, but I wish that that was not uh, the rule. I wish that that was just the exception. Those are solid answers, man. Um, okay. Let's take this from what we're currently doing to the future. So if you had a crystal ball and could see into the future, 
what would fire service training and learning look like in 10 or 15 years? Kind of, if you had your way, if you could steer this ship, what would it look like? Uh, so I think it's a lot of, uh, the easiest way to put it is it's just common sense, man. I mean, it's, it's, <clears throat> I feel like we've gotten so far off the beaten path. Um, what I really, really want to focus on in the next 10 years and, and kind of my personal goal, uh, is bringing the availability of realistic training to the masses. And I think one of the biggest issues that I've run into, and this is me personally, I'm not speaking on behalf of any company or, or, or any department, me personally, I have found some of the coolest training uh, enhancers, let's just call them enhancers, whether it's virtual reality, whether it's uh, a, a fake fire panel. I have found so many things that would drastically change fire training in this country. And it's either way too expensive to afford, right? For your average fire department. Um, it's way too uh, intricate right? So it's not simple. It's not a simple setup. It's going to take programming or uh, it's going to take some something else. Um, and it's hard to find those things, right? So uh, let's touch on the fire panels real quick, right? Like I'm not going to name names, but there's a really, really good fire panel that behaves really well to water application. Uh, and each panel that's uh, 14 inches by 14 inch or 24 inches by 24 inches is $16,000. Who the hell is going to buy that? Like I get it and it's cool and it works really well. Um, but unless you have a multi-million dollar budget, you're not buying that. And I guarantee if you have a multi-million dollar budget, you're probably running enough fires that you don't need it. So who really needs something like that? Well, it's the small volunteer department out in the middle of nowhere, right? Because they don't get a lot of fires. And they don't get to see a lot of realistic fire behavior. Um, and so that can augment their training. So Again, I, in the next 10 years where I want to be with training is more realistic, but I want that realism to be attainable, whether it's on a regional level, whether it's on an individual level. Um, there's, there's some really, really cool stuff that's out there. Now, for every one thing that I've said that is unattainable, there's some really, really attainable stuff uh, that's out there that, that we can use. You just got to find it. So talking to guys like you, talking to guys like me, um, those are things that we're constantly looking at. That was great. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more with you. Now, final question, which is actually like four questions. Um, so uh, what is the best class that you have attended? Ooh. Oh, that's always tough, man. Cause I know all my friends are watching. So like, if I, <laughs> if I say like, Oh, this guy's class was great. Or this, this girl's uh, lecture was amazing. Uh, then somebody else is going to get uh, offended. So, so I will say this, the best class that I have ever taken uh, was nozzle forward, but it wasn't for the reason that you think. Um, nozzle forward is an amazing mantra. It's an amazing uh, uh, view. It's an amazing culture. The following is is amazing. But the reason why that is probably the most influential class that I've ever taken is because of the cadre and uh, Aaron Fields. Uh, he, and, and, and full disclosure, I've taken this class like six times. I've showed up and taken this class like six times. But uh, he showed me that it's okay to be dialed in and it's okay to love the job, right? Like that guy's passion for nozzle work and flowing water and the fire service as a whole. Uh, he was the first one to show me like, dude, you can be dialed in and be nuts about the fire service and screw everybody else. Um, and so that, uh, I mean, I enjoyed the class and I learned a lot from it and I still use all the stuff that he taught uh, in one way or the other, but it was the, culture that it brought to me and showing me that, uh, you know, it's okay to love the job. So that's the best class. Nice. What's, uh, what's your favorite conference you've been to? Uh, you know, probably the best venue that I've been to so far, uh, revolutionary fire tactics at the lake down at Lake of the Ozarks, uh, Dave Woodward and Beth Woodward, uh, and, and the, and the, uh, IFF chapter and the fools down there. Uh, the venue is amazing. Uh, it's spread out over the entire lake. So you go to the training grounds, it's on one side of the lake, the, the conference part is on the other. Um, and it's really, really cool because they're bringing in instructors from all across the country here to the Midwest. Um, and so over the days, you're getting that interaction. Uh, and the one thing that's really unique is it's small enough that you still have access to those instructors. 
Uh, you know, when I've been to some of the bigger conferences, yeah, that's great. You went and sat in on an hour 45 lecture, but you don't ever see that person again. Like to try to track them down, it's impossible. Uh, and so with this, you, you actually have access to them. I mean, the other, uh, there's a picture on my Facebook page from last year. It's like all the instructors sitting in a room uh, talking with the students. And this is like 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> like we're all sitting around drinking, uh, socializing. So yeah, it's, it's a really, really cool conference and it's a great venue. Uh, if you've never been to Lake of the Ozarks, it's a fun place to go. I couldn't agree more. Like uh, I, I went, I think two or three years ago we actually did the, the fire behavior class on the Friday. It was like fucking 105 degrees. So yes. Was, it was, was horrible, man. That was awesome. <laughs> but like uh, the rooms he, he hooked us up with uh, the views. I mean, it's just, uh, it's an amazing location. So he, him and, and his wife did a great job. Um, okay. Now this is one that, that Ladine's waiting for over there. Uh, best book you've read. Oh, uh, <clears throat> So the dichotomy of leadership uh, by Jocko Willink, uh, that that single-handedly changed my view on leadership. And uh, it's definitely one of those books that uh, it takes a lot of being introspective. It takes a lot of sitting there and going, ooh, maybe I've been doing this wrong. Um, but if you read it and you understand it and you actually use some of those principles, yes, yes. If you use some of those principles uh, and, and, and full disclosure, like I'm really, really, I've been a, I've screwed a lot of stuff up. <laughs> I've screwed a lot of stuff up over the years. Uh, I was a bull in the China shop. You know, I wanted to fix stuff now and I wanted change right now. Uh, and that book really helped me to uh, tone that down. I, I, I wholeheartedly believe that it is the reason that I've been able to accomplish the things that I've been able to accomplish within my own department, within Valor Fire Training, within my own life uh, here in the last couple of years, because I know when to let things go. I know when to let things grow organically and when to give it a little shove. Uh, and then from a leadership standpoint, the guys that I work with guys and gals that I work with, um, they're appreciative of the style that I have, uh, which was pretty similar to what was in the book, but it, it gave me a lot of really good resources. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, they're like, dude, you, you don't lose your mind about stuff that you don't really need to lose your mind about. Yeah, it's a great book. Have you read, uh, his leadership tactics and strategies? The, uh, the green one. I am in the process of reading it right now. Yeah, that's that's top notch too. Yeah, and that's the first book, and then the the, the dichotomy of leadership, and then the tactics one. It's uh, it's it, I mean, it's cool because it's not necessarily about the fire service, and that's what I love about it. Is uh, you know, we can go read a bunch of leadership books on the fire service, but it's all dialed in specifically to engine company operations or truck company operations or fire department uh, leadership. Man, I want to know how to be a leader in in life in general not just specifically to the fire service. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you on that. All right, so uh, what podcast, and you, you can shameless plug too. So what podcasts, plural, you know, do you think are, are great ones that we should be listening to? Uh, this one and Valor Fire Training. No, I'm just kidding. That's, <laughs> you know, I think uh, the my favorite one right now is uh, the Sean Ryan show. Have you guys seen that? Okay, so Sean Ryan uh, was a Navy SEAL. He did some CIA work. Um, and so he has a podcast. He's extremely soft-spoken. Uh, he seems like a super laid-back, chill dude. Uh, but he now lives, uh, I believe he's down in Tennessee. But he has people, uh, he had Marcus Luttrell. Uh, he has Mikhail Vega, uh, who's another uh, military guy that was a SEAL that did some CIA stuff and, and did the um, video games now, like... Uh, Modern Warfare. He's the guy that kind of helps with all Modern Warfare stuff. Um, so his his show is amazing because it brings all these different perspectives. Uh, and then he brings in like the police chief who beat up the guy that tried to drown his child. Uh, I don't know if you guys heard about that, but uh, there was a police chief. A uh, guy walked into the police station, and said, "Hey, I just drowned my kid." They drove over there, found the kid, rescued her, saved her life. Uh, when the police chief got back, he uh, doesn't remember exactly what happened, but he kind of snapped. Uh, knocked the guy around a little bit. Dude's fine. I mean, didn't break a bone or anything like that, but uh, ended up losing his job. Obviously, there's going to be legal ramifications, but he had that guy on the show. And the reason why he did is because he talked about PTSD. He talked about that moment when he realized that he screwed up and how he had to own up to it. Um, and so just watching that one podcast, which ironically, it happened like on the other side of the Kansas City Metro over in Missouri. 
Um, but watching that podcast, I was like, man, that's, that's huge, right? Like he knew instantly that he had a career ending moment and he walked through like the thought process and what he felt and who he talked to and where he got help. Uh, and so that was huge because we, any one of us could be in that position, right? It's happened to firefighters too. So that's, I, I love that show. There's just, uh, and again, it's not specifically about the fire service, but the lessons that you can take away from it, it's directly applicable. Yeah. Thank you for those recommendations. I love those, as you kind of alluded to those books, those shows, those videos that on the surface don't deal with the fire service at all, but really are perfectly, perfectly analogous to the fire service. So they're not about the fire service, but they are about the fire service. I love those books and shows. So thank you for that recommendation. And I know our listeners can't see this and the book question, Jeff kind of alluded, like that's a setup to see, to, to kind of turn Nick on. As soon as he mentioned Jocko and the dichotomy of leadership, I know you can't see this everybody, but Jeff Bryant went nuts in the background. He was muted, but he was flexing in the background and couldn't have been more excited. Um, so, so, so thank you for that. Uh, I think that's about it, David, anything else you want to add before we kind of wrap up here? Yeah. I just want to say to everybody listening, uh, you know, I, I, I love doing these shows. I love being able to talk to people. I love, uh, whether it's your guys's podcast or, or mine, uh, the dynamic that we're bringing to the fire service. But the one thing I want people to remember, uh, as you're driving to work, listening to this while you're working out, whatever you're doing right now, um, keep your love for the fire service. And, uh, you know, they're especially right now with COVID and with some of the political climates, uh, it's hard to be a firefighter right now. Uh, and it's hard to be, whether you're volunteer combination career, uh, we're all feeling the pressure politically. We're all feeling the pressure <clears throat> financially. I mean, there's just a lot of different things going on. Um, the one thing to remember is that at the end of the day, we still have the best job in the world and it's always going to be that way for the rest of the time. That's sage advice right there. Don't let anything else or anyone else take your love away. Uh, so thank you so much, David. We really appreciate your time and your willingness to help spread the cure. For all the listeners, be sure to check out Valor Fire Training, uh, both virtually and anytime you can see them at a conference. Uh, check out their podcast and also check out the hot seat. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you, David. Thank you, guys. Thank you.